So this morning I want to start with one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible. Now, I've got a lot of them, so I'm not sure that uh, uh, really narrows it down much. But I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 13 is the one that we want to start with, verses 13 and 14. It says, Christ has redeemed us. Now, Paul is writing to the church. He's writing to uh, primarily Gentile believers. But we know that uh, in the region of Galatia, uh, the, the territory that makes up the, the Galatian churches, uh, or in which the Galatian churches are located, um, there are a lot of Jews and, and uh, the, the idea of the Jewish heritage and, and Abraham's covenant with God and Abraham's blessing and so forth is prevalent. Uh, because of the things that Paul writes and, and the way that he writes it. Most Bible scholars uh, believe, and I, I happen to agree with them on this one, that the book of Hebrews was not written as a standalone letter, but that it was joined to the book that bears the title to the Galatians. Uh, but that later on, that it was after it was received by the churches in the, Gal- uh, the Galatian region, it was uh, uh, separated and, and sent to Jerusalem and, and, um, uh, and, and stood on its own. Uh, that may be, and, and it makes sense to me why it would be, but it might be the reason why the book of uh, Hebrews is the only letter written to the church that does not identify who the author is. Uh, it also might uh, identify or explain why in Galatians chapter uh, 6, toward the end of the, the letter uh, that we know of as the, the letter written to the Galatians, that Paul identified what a large letter he wrote. Uh, some people have used that to say Paul had eye disease, so he had to write in big letters. But um, um, if, if that were the case, who's going to carry the scrolls, you know? But uh, nevertheless, it, uh, uh, it would uh, probably be an indication that those two, two books were joined together. And as such, Paul would write some things to the Galatians, Gentiles, Gentile believers, about Abraham's covenant that he might not tell others that he hadn't, uh, that done, didn't have the same experience or uh, the same background. Anyway... Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, he says, Christ hath, past tense, hath, already done something, hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now here's why he did that. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now skip down with me to, to verse 29 at the end of the chapter. He concludes chapter 3, what we know of as chapter 3, this thought in the letter. He concludes it by saying, And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Thank God Jesus redeemed us. But if you ask most Christians what did, uh, uh, what did Christ redeem us from, what did he uh, do for us, most people talk about sin. Most people say, well, we're, we're redeemed from sin. Well, that's partly true. Because the redemption from sin is included in what Christ redeemed us from. But that's really not what the Bible says. The Bible says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now you start talking to Christians and asking them what the curse of the law is. And most of them will give you a blank look. Because the curse of the law is not spoken of very much in church circles. At least in modern church circles today. So if we want to know what we're redeemed from. We're going to have to find out what the curse of the law is. And there's one place in the scripture. Many places that we could look to. But one place in the scripture that, uh, that summarizes the curse of the law better than any other place, and that's in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is Moses' farewell address. Actually, the whole book of Deuteronomy is, is Moses' farewell address to, the, to uh, Israel 
He knows he's not going into the promised land, but that Joshua is going to take them over the Jordan River and to take possession of what God had promised them. And so his whole, the, 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 primary, the, the primary purpose of the book of Deuteronomy is Moses addressing the people, warning them, encouraging them, and so forth, knowing that he's going off the scene, so he leaves them a record of what they should and should not do. Moses was the lawgiver. He's known in, in Jewish history as the lawgiver. And so he identifies, here's what God wants you to do with this law that's been given. So he starts off in Deuteronomy chapter 28, in the first part of the chapter, first 14 verses, he talks about the blessings of keeping the covenant, of obeying the covenant uh, provisions that God has given through the law. But in verse 15, he said, But if it shall, it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all of his commandments and, all, and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And he's talking about disobedience or breaking the law. And he's saying these curses are a result of the broken law. He goes in, on in verse 16, Cursed shalt thou be in the city, and cursed shalt thou be in the field. The indication is, or the implication is, you can't get away from the curse. You walk in disobedience to God's law, and you can't escape no matter where you go. I don't know what it is about us, but so, so many times the human nature is we think we can get away with something. We think that somehow or another we can escape. You know, Jonah had that same idea. Jonah knew exactly what God wanted him to do and said, well, I don't want to do that. He, God wants me to go preach to Nineveh and get those people saved, so to speak, get them to repent and turn back to God. And I don't want to do that. I don't like the Ninevites, and I don't want them to be spared from destruction. So I'm going to go the other way. Well, God kind of knows where you are. I remember R.W. Schombach, who made a, one of the, the most outstanding evangelists of, of modern day. Um, he said that when he was a young man, uh, 19, 20 years old, something like that, he said he knew God wanted him to go preach. Well, he didn't want to go preach, so he joined the army and they shipped him out to Japan. He said, I got off the ship and took a step on Japan, uh, the soil of Japan, and I said, I realized God was there just like he was where I left. <laughs> I had to go to Japan to find out God was there too. There's no escape, folks. God's everywhere. Cursed shalt thou be in the city, and cursed shalt thou be in the field. Cursed shall be the basket in thy store, talking about financial provision or the lack thereof. Cursed shall be the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy land, the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep. He said, you'll be cursed in your family. You'll be cursed in your business. Cursed shalt thou be when thou comest in and cursed shalt thou be when thou goest out. Where are you going to go? Everything about the Bible, everything about Moses' encouragement and, and instruction in the book of Deuteronomy is obey God. You'll live a happier life if you obey God. Surrendering to God is something the devil tells you you're going to miss out on so much fun. Yeah, look at all the fun you're going to miss out on by surrendering to God. Cursed in the city and cursed in the field, cursed in the basket and cursed in the store, cursed in the fruit of your body and the fruit of your ground, cursed in your flocks and your herds or whatever your business is. Look at all that fun you'll miss out on. Verse 20. The Lord shall send upon thee cursing, vexation, and rebuke, and in all that thou settest thine hand unto for to do, until thou be destroyed, and until thou perish quickly, because of the wickedness of thy doings, whereby thou hast forsaken me. That doesn't sound too good, does it? 
Now, I've, without going any further, well, there's two ways we could do this. We could read through all the the, uh, the things that we want to point out this morning. We won't read all of the curses that are identified in verse in chapter 28, but uh, we will cover some of them. So we could either read them all and then make these comments at the end, or we could make the comments up front before we read them. So I'm going to choose to make the comments up front. Notice it says in verse 20, the Lord shall send upon thee. Robert Young, Dr. Young, who was uh, in his day the foremost uh, Greek and Hebrew scholar of his day, he's the author of Young's Analytical Concordance. Now, a lot of people don't even know that there was such a thing anymore. It was, uh, it was the primary and premier reference work in his day, but it's, uh, it's been uh, taken over, so to speak, or uh, it's not used as much in, in this present day as Strong's Concordance. James Strong came and wrote a concordance from uh, the Greek and Hebrew, and most everybody uses that. Most of the things you get online are coded to or connected to Strong's Concordance rather than Young's. And, uh, and that's fine. It's, a, it's an excellent reference work as well. But I think as a result, a lot of people have come to the place where they don't know who Dr. Young was anymore, and that's a shame because he wrote some of the, uh, the most outstanding um, scholarly works regarding the, the Bible related to language and so forth of, of anything that we have record of. Well, one book that he wrote was called Hints to Bible Interpretation. It's out of print. Um, it's, it's the book that nobody seems to be able to find. I've had people email me from seeing this on TV and hearing me at, uh, in different parts of the world even saying, I'm going to find that book for you, and nobody ever is able to do it. Uh, if, if you can find Hints to Bible Interpretation, I will pay a premium for it. Please understand. <laughs> but a lot of times what happens is people will t- take uh, a portion of uh, the notes of uh, the concordance of Dr. Young, which includes a little bit of the information, and they'll think, well, we found it, we found it. Well, the, you found the, uh, the, the basic premise, but he had a whole book on, on uh, hints to Bible interpretation. And in that book and in his notes as well, he points out that the Hebrew has a verb that the, the English does not have. It's called the jussive verb. Now, I'm not an uh, English scholar, much less a Hebrew scholar. But, uh, but as I understand it, and I am able to read, and so uh, he identifies that the jussive verb is a verb that is translated into the King James English as causative or in the causative sense when it should be in the permissive sense. In other words, here in verse 20, for example, where it says, The Lord shall send upon thee vexation, cursing and rebuke, and all that thou saidst thy hand to do, it should more accurately read according to him. He's the scholar, not me. But according to him, it should more accurately read, the Lord will allow vexation upon thee. Now, with that in mind, I want to point out a couple of things. Hold your finger here, and, and if, if you'd like to, turn with me to some other scriptures to make this point, to point it out. I want you to look with me, first of all, to, to Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 7. And these are examples that he points out. I'm just taking his information as the, the Hebrew scholar and the Hebrew expert and relating it to you for better understanding. This is not what I think about it. This is what he says about it. And this is also included in the notes of uh, the concordance. So this can be verified. It's not just my idea that's pulled out of the sky saying, well, it was in a book that nobody can get a hold of anymore and verify. It's there, just not in its complete form. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 7 says, I form the light, God speaking first person. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, folks, is that true? Does God create evil? If God creates evil, how can he judge us for doing evil? 
we'd just be participating in his works, wouldn't we? Well, what does it mean, I create evil? Well, it means God allows evil. Well, we know that's, to be, that's true. God allows us to sin, doesn't he? I think it would be to our advantage sometimes if God refused to allow us to sin. But that's not the way he works. He tells us what's in our best interest and then lets man make the choice for himself. It's the exercise and the determination of man's will that makes the difference, not God. God's not the one doing evil out there. Look with me to Amos chapter 3. Verse 6, it says, Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? Now, is that true? Is God the one doing evil in the city? Of course not. Again, if God's doing evil, that makes him a sinner. How can he judge us for doing evil? Finally, another example that he uses, I'll give you three. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. So I'll give you three. First Samuel chapter 16, speaking of Saul, and uh, because of his disobedience, it says in verse 14, 1 Samuel 16, 14, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Is that true? Is that where evil spirits come from? They come from the Lord? If they come from the Lord, then we should welcome them, shouldn't we? Come in, dear friend. <laughs> evil spirits don't come from the Lord. Well, what is, it, what is it revealing to us? It's revealing the translators. And, and every translation is based on two things, folks. Translations are not magical. Translations are not anointed. The Word of God is anointed. The Word of God is spoken by God Himself, given by God. And it's life and it's power, but not necessarily the translation. That would even be true today. The Word of God is true, but not everybody's interpretation of the Word is true. Isn't that right? Well, every translation is going to depend on two things, and that is the translator's knowledge of the language, number one, and secondly, their understanding of God. Because they're going to interpret language, and and the the Hebrew especially. The Hebrew uh, language is full of words and verbs and uh, and so forth that that can be taken two different ways. For example, we just read in, in Isaiah 45, verse 7, Uh, I form the light and create darkness. Well, the word create could be translated either to make as in to create, or it could also be translated to cut down like you'd cut down a tree. So when he says, I form the light and create darkness, what's he saying? He's saying, I form the light and it cuts down the darkness. Well, both translations are accurate to cut down or to create. Which one is the translator going to pick? The one he picks is going to be based on his understanding of God. Not according to the language. So every translation is based on two things. It's based on the knowledge of the language that the translators had and their understanding of God. Well, I would submit we have a much greater understanding since the Bible is progressive revelation. You understand more and more as as things go forward and progress in time. I would suggest to you that we in many ways have a greater understanding of God than the translators did. Which means we're going to have to judge the translation by the understanding that the scripture gives us and not just the words themselves. So that brings us back to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 20, where it says, the Lord shall send upon thee vexation and rebuke and all that you set your hands unto to do. It means the Lord will allow it. 
He's not causing it. He will allow it. Now, why is that the case? Why does God allow things that are bad and, and, and evil and, and, uh, and hurtful to us? Because God set up a system. God doesn't interfere with his system. He set up a system here on the earth. He's the creator of the earth. The earth is, it was created to be subject to God's person in authority. We know when he put Adam in the Garden of Eden, he put, gave him dominion over all the works of his hands. Adam was, in one sense, the God of this world. Now, I don't mean he was God equal with God in the sense that he was, uh, had the ability to create universes and so forth. I mean he was the God of this world in the, in the sense or in the context that he was the ruler over everything that God created. Now, folks, whether you know that or not, that's the only form that Satan is the God of this world in. If Satan could create universes, why wouldn't he make his own and, and do his thing there? He can't. But instead, he rules over this one that God made. Now, the reason that he rules is because Adam transferred his authority, his God-given authority over to Satan through disobedience to God's commandment. He ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when he was commanded not to. And that changed everything. But God's system still works. Didn't change the system. It changed the, the, the organization of who's in charge. God's system is very simply this. The earth is intended to respond in optimal form to someone who speaks God's word operating under God's authority. That's the way it's designed to work. Well, what happens if we disobey God? What happens if we disobey God's word? Then the system works against us rather than for us. You remember over in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, I believe it is, it says bodily exercise profits little, or literally it says for a little while, but godliness is profitable unto all things. What's he saying? He's saying God's system is godliness. Living a godly life, obeying God and operating according to his plan and purpose for you and for your life will profit you in every area of life. Why? Because it's God's system. Well, what if I choose not to? then the earth's going to work against you. Even though God created the system to work for you and to bring blessing into your life, the system will work contrary to God's plan for you. That's God's system. Moses is just simply saying, here's how the system works. Are you out there? Does this make any sense to you? God's not the one picking and choosing winners and losers. He's not the one killing babies. Because of sin in the earth... Tragic things happen. And the church is always right there, bless their hearts, to blame it on God. God's not the one doing bad stuff. But he set up a system that's supposed to work according to godliness, according to to obedience, according to the authority that God has given man based on his word. And if we step outside of that authority, then we step over into the area of curses rather than blessings that God intended. And that's what Moses is talking about. That's why there is a curse of the law. That's why Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. Because God never wanted this stuff to happen to us to begin with. Verse 20 again. The Lord shall send or allow upon thee cursing, vexation, and rebuke, and all that thou settest thine hand unto for to do. That means nothing's going to work right, folks. Backslidden Christians are the most miserable people on the face of the earth. 
Now, they may tell you they're having a good time. They may tell you they're doing their own thing and, and it's all working out well, but nothing is going well for them. I've never been able to find a backslider that came back to the Lord and said, I'm glad I went away. But I found a lot of them that said, I can't believe I stayed away so long. What was I thinking? The Lord shall allow upon thee cursing, vexation, and rebuke, and all that thou settest thine hand unto for to do, until thou be destroyed, and until thou perish quickly. The word destroyed means to be desolate. The word perish means to wander around like you're lost. Now, why will that happen? Why, why will we be destroyed and why will we perish quickly? Because of the wickedness of our doings. In other words, it's not God doing anything to you. It's the system working. It'll work either for you or against you. Your choice. The Lord shall make or allow the pestilence to cleave unto thee until he has consumed thee, until literally you have been consumed from off the land, whether thou goest to possess it. The Lord shall allow thee to be smitten with a consumption and with a fever and with an inflammation and with an extreme burning and with the sword and with blasting and with mildew and they shall pursue thee until thou perish. Verse 27, the Lord will smite or allow you to be smitten with the bonch of Egypt. Many believe that to be leprosy. And with the emeralds and with the scab and with the itch whereof thou canst not be healed. Verse 28, the Lord shall allow thee to be, thee to be smitten with, with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart. So mental issues are involved here too. Verse 29, And thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind gropeth in darkness, and thou shalt not prosper in thy ways, and thou shalt be only oppressed and spoiled evermore, and no man shall save thee. Verse 35, The Lord shall allow thee to be smitten in the knees and in the legs with a sore bites that cannot be healed from the sole of thy foot until the top of thy head. Verse 58, If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law. Now he's telling you this is the curse of the law. If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear the glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, then the Lord will allow your plagues to be wonderful. That word wonderful means terrible. It means an awesomeness in terror. And the plagues of thy seed, your children, even great plagues, and of long continuance, and sore sickness, and long continuance. Do you know that... The, most of the time doctors will ask you one of the first things they'll ask you when you go in to see a new doctor you've got to fill out all these forms and tell them everything that's in your family history and all that kind of stuff you know why that is? because sin and sickness has a way to follow family trees Jesus ended that I don't care if your family has a history of heart disease if you walk in faith you don't I don't care if your family has a history of cancer if you walk in obedience to the word, which is faith in God's word, you don't have that history in you. Those are good things to know, folks. The Lord will allow your plagues to be wonderful and the plagues of your seed, even great plagues and of long continuance and sore sicknesses and of long continuance. Moreover, he will bring or allow upon thee all the diseases of Egypt. It means there are a lot of things out there that he hasn't identified. All the diseases of Egypt, which thou wert afraid of. And they shall cleave unto thee. Verse 61. Also every sickness. Everybody say every. That means you're redeemed. The curse of the law includes everything that's named. And every sickness known to man. Or unknown yet to man. That's not named. Also every sickness and every plague. Which is not written in this book of the law. 
Them will the Lord allow to come upon thee until thou be destroyed. Now, the curse of the law is identified in three things. We've only emphasized one, and that's sickness. But the curse of the law is identified throughout the book of Deuteronomy and other places in the Old Testament as three things. First, sickness. Secondly, poverty. And third, spiritual death. Now, sin is a part of spiritual death. But you can well understand that when most of the church world says that when Christ redeemed us, he redeemed us from sin, that leaves out two important areas. Two very important areas. Which, in my opinion, is why this scripture and this truth is not taught very much in the modern day church, at least not in the American church. Because most of the American church is not willing to accept that Jesus did paid a price for sickness and poverty, just like he paid a price for spiritual death and sin. Most of the American church would rather put off the blessings of God until we get to heaven. Well, let me ask you a question. Are you going to be more saved in heaven than you are now? What happens in heaven? What's the difference in heaven than, than now? There's one and only one difference, and that is we'll have redeemed bodies. We'll have redeemed bodies. But if Jesus just died for our spiritual well-being, then why was he beaten in Pilate's court? Why did Jesus have to pay a physical price if spiritual redemption or the forgiveness of sin is the only thing that redemption includes? Jesus paid an awful physical price. His back was beaten to such a degree that that you couldn't tell one mark from another. Literally, instead of by his stripes, as the King James translates, by his stripes we were healed, it literally says by his bruise. The mark of the blow is what that word means. We were healed. The flesh was torn off of Jesus' back, folks. A lot of people got upset with the Passion of the Christ movie that came out some years ago because it was too bloody. I would submit to you it wasn't bloody enough. I'm not saying you can show that on a film or should. But what Jesus paid for was a lot more than what we see in the Passion of the Christ or anything else that's tried to depict it. Are you with me? Why? If the shedding of the blood on the cross was that which secured redemption from sin, then why be beaten? Why did Jesus have to pay a physical price? Because, folks, the Bible says that the same blood that redeems you from sin redeems you from sickness and poverty. Isaiah 53, verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our, our pains. Literally, that's where those words are sickness and disease. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our disease. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. That's sin. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's sin. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. That word peace is the word shalom. It means well-being in every area. It's translated prosperity in some places in the Old Testament. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we were healed. Isaiah is looking forward to the cross. So he says, we are healed. Peter, looking back says of Jesus, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness, that's First Peter 2.24, by whose stripes you were healed. Isaiah is looking forward to the cross. Peter's looking backwards to it. So Isaiah says, through the stripes of Jesus we are or will be healed. Peter says, looking back at the cross, because Jesus went and paid the price, 
we were healed. Same blood, same price, same sacrifice. Same sacrifice. Now, why is this not prevalent or common knowledge among the church, in, at least the church in America? I hope it's different in other parts of the world. But the American church fights against it. Why is this? The Bible says conclusively, it says very simply, who's the author of sickness and disease, and that's the devil. When God created the world, he made everything that he made in the first six days and rested on the seventh day, and there was no sickness to be found. That means if sickness came on the scene after the first six days, God didn't have anything to do with it. God looked at it at the end of the first six days, the six days of creation, and he said, this is very good. Well, if sickness was a part of the earth and the creation that had been made, then we'd have to conclude that sickness is good. But it wasn't anywhere to be found. Furthermore, Jesus told his disciples when he taught them to pray, he prayed that the will of God would be done on the earth just like it is in heaven. Well, is there any sickness in heaven? Well, then it must not be God's will for there to be sickness. Sickness can't be God's will because if it was God's will, he'd want some in heaven. He'd have some in heaven, but there's not any. In 1875, John Alexander Dowie, who had been schooled as a, a lawyer, and then after he had tra- received his uh, education, his higher education, he found that the, the Lord had called him to preach. He was uh, pastoring a church in Australia, and the bubonic plague broke out. And in a, in a matter of uh, just a couple of weeks, 40 of his church members had died. He'd been going to funeral after funeral after funeral, he said at the time this occurred, there were more of them that had died that he hadn't yet been to the funeral. They couldn't, keep, they couldn't bury people fast enough. So he goes into his study and he buries his head in his hands and cries out unto God, not knowing the truth. He cries out unto God. He said, Lord, is my whole congregation going to die? Now, this was his understanding at the time. He said, are you going to take everybody that's in my church? So he sat there and wept for a few moments. And he said, all of a sudden on the inside of him, he heard a scripture. He said, I was aware of it. I had read the scripture, but I'd never paid much attention to it. It was Acts 10, 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. He said it's, instantly, he said, I saw it. He said, I saw it. I saw that God was the one doing good and healing. Jesus was the one doing good and healing. He said the devil was the one that was oppressing people. The devil was the one making people sick. He said, when I began to think on it, then I was reminded of Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8, which says Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which means if Jesus did good on his earthly ministry by healing people, Jesus would still do good by healing people today, in his day. Well, that 40th person was the last church member he lost. He went out. Immediately to some person that was at the point of death that he knew of in his church, walked into that sick room, laid hands on this person, and with great boldness commanded the devil to take his hands off of him. The person rose up well. Every other person that had or had contracted that disease up to that point in time was healed. They didn't lose another church member. The officials in that part of the country, that part of Australia, came to him and said, how are you keeping your people from dying? 
it opened up the whole country of Australia for him to preach Jesus as the healer. One revelation that the devil's the one that makes people sick and God's the one that heals. Changed his life, changed his ministry, changed the country. What about Luke chapter 13? Luke chapter 13 tells us the story of when Jesus goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he finds a woman that's bound together and could in no wise lift herself up. And he commanded her, he said, Woman, thou art loose from thine infirmity. The word loose there is a root word for redeemed. Woman, thou art loose or redeemed from thine infirmity. And he laid hands on her and she was made straight. Now, we don't know exactly what her condition was or whatever it was, but we can assume that she's bowed over together and, and has to scoot along and can only watch the top of her shoes. That seems to be what the Bible is describing. So he laid hands on her and she was made straight and stood up straight and tall. And the Bible says that the ruler of the synagogue got mad. Here's what happens with the religious people when people get healed. Now, this is a member of his congregation. The ruler of the synagogue got mad and said, aren't there six days in which to work? Do you have to come and do the work on the Sabbath day? And Jesus said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know that was your custom around here. No, Jesus used a term that's the most derogatory term that God can use. And he said, thou hypocrite. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath day loose his ox or his ass and take him away to watering? Do you not break your own code? For keeping the law of Moses to make sure that your animals, which provides you income, is taken care of. And he says in verse 16, Luke 13, verse 16, he said, And ought not this woman, I love this verse of scripture, and ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham. Now, why is she like, uh, liable or why is she eligible for healing? Because it's part of Abraham's covenant. It's part of Abraham's blessing. Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, Number one, first thing Jesus said is it belongs to her because she's the daughter of Abraham. Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. Ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham whom Satan is bound. Second thing he mentions is the reason she's bound up, the reason she's in her uh, uh, afflicted condition is because Satan has held her bound. Folks, I want you to understand something. Every sickness is satanic bondage. It's robbing you of life. It robs you of blessing. It robs you of the goodness of God. And God despises every moment of it. God's not behind it. God's not trying to teach somebody anything. God made a way for us to escape it. Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, lo, these 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Oh, thank God, God's into loosening. God's into breaking bondage. Hallelujah. Well, what are we to do? What do these things mean? Well, the first thing we should do is believe the Bible. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I can give you a whole long list of theologians that don't believe like that. Yeah, I can double your list. Let me ask you a question. Does the truth become the truth by consensus? I always get amused when people talk about this global warming, climate change stuff. Well, there's a consensus among scientists. That's the stupidest statement you could ever make. A consensus means that scientists haven't been able to prove anything. Because once it's proven, there is no consensus to it. It's truth. It's fact. But what determines truth? Is the truth determined by what the majority of the people believe? 
if that's the case, then gay marriage is the truth. Because it seems that the majority of people are willing to go along with it. Folks, the truth is the truth no matter who believes it or who refuses to believe it. The truth is the truth because it's true. God's word is truth. And if everybody turns away from it, the word of God is still the truth. If everybody refuses to accept what the word says. Now, I know it's fashionable nowadays with, uh, with certain ideas and politically correct ideas and so forth. That we're not supposed to judge. We're supposed to be tolerant. And the word tolerant nowadays seems to mean accept what, everybody's, what anybody says they want. Well, folks, I'm tolerant. I don't care what somebody does, but that doesn't make what they're doing true or right. But they have a right to do it. Okay. Well, you don't have the right to do it in front of me. I'm going to live by the truth. I'm going to live by the word. Now, I know it's, it's even getting politically acceptable nowadays to say, well, now those people that believe in the Bible got to do something about them. I wonder who's behind that. I mean, beside the Democrats. <laughs> Folks, I got to tell you something, and I don't care. They can threaten me with our tax exemption. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Threaten me with whatever you want to. No, 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 don't do that. Please don't do that. I'm not looking for popularity here. Dear God, if I did that, I'd be in a different business. But I don't see, I don't see how any Christian can be blind to the fact that the Democratic Party is the agent of Satan's agenda. I'm not speaking against anybody. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not talking about people as individuals. There might be good people that are Democrats. Might be good people that are even Democratic. Uh, well, I started to say Democratic politicians, but I'm not sure that's it. that's possible. But nevertheless, there might be good people involved. But I don't see. I don't see. My personal opinion. I don't see how anybody can look around and see and not understand, not be aware of the fact that the Democratic Party is pushing the, sa- the Satan's, the devil's agenda. They just are. And it's becoming more and more open. Now, that doesn't mean the Republicans are God's people. I wish they were. But it's the world we live in. But nothing changes the truth. Not a poll. Not popular opinion. The truth is the truth because God says it's true. So what about the church? What about the theologians that say that healing is not part of the redemptive work of Jesus? Well, what does God say? God says very clearly that it is. And Jesus proved it by healing the sick. So what are we to do? The first thing we're to do is to accept the word of God as truth. Yeah, but a lot of people are going to say you can't believe in that. Let them say what they want to. The word of God is still true. Second thing that we need to do, and I want you to turn with me to James chapter 5 for this. Second thing we need to do is to act on what we believe. James chapter 5. James writing to the church. James is the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. He's the half-brother of Jesus. He didn't believe in Jesus when, his, when Jesus was operating in his earthly ministry. He was the one, one of the ones that stood off and said, well, I don't know. Can't argue with what he's doing, but I just I just can't accept all this. But tradition tells us, we don't have any way to confirm this one way or the other, but it would seem to fit. 
Tradition tells us that Jesus appeared to, to James after he was raised from the dead. And it was that, at that point that James gave his life to the Lord and Jesus used him, put him in a position of leadership in the church. James says in verse 14, is any sick among you? Is any sick among you? Now, folks, think about the, the, the way that he asked the question. The implication is there should not be any sick among the church. He sure wouldn't write to the modern-day church like that. He'd write to the 75 or 80% of the, of the people in the church that are sick, here's what you need to do. But the implication is there shouldn't be any sick among the church. The church, the people of God, the kingdom of God should be a sickness-free zone. That's God's intent. Is any sick among you? What are we going to do? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them, the elders, pray over him, the sick, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, why does, he, why does he indicate the anointing with oil? There's no other place in the letters written to the church that anointing with oil is instructed. There are a couple of places where Jesus anointed people with oil when he was in his earthly ministry, but he's always ministering to Jews. Anointing with oil is always identified with the Jews. Why? Because it's part of their history. Anointing with oil was a means or a ritual whereby something was se uh, uh, separated unto or consecrated unto God. And it indicates it's a type of your bodies being separated unto God by the work of Jesus. The Bible says you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in both your body and in your spirit, which are both God's. Well, how did your body become God's? By Jesus' blood. The anointing with oil not only indicates that Jesus separated your body, your flesh. We look at our flesh sometimes and think it's not worth anything. Well, it was worth something to Jesus. He paid a price for it. So it indicates, first of all, that it was separated unto God. God consecrated man's bodies unto himself. Now, why? Why does God care about your body? Because it's the temple of your spirit. And your spirit is the home of the Holy Ghost. So he wants your body to work well and work properly. And secondly, it indicates or signifies that we've consecrated our bodies to God's service. That's what the anointing with oil is about. So James, pastor of a primarily or predominantly Jewish church, gives instruction from the Holy Ghost because he's writing to the Jews that are scattered abroad throughout the earth. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them, the elders, pray over him, the sick, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Notice it's not the oil. It's the prayer of faith. Now he's just said, let them, the elders, pray over him, the sick. And now he tells what kind of prayer it should be. The prayer of faith shall save the sick. The word prayer really is the word declaration. It's a vow. It's not the elders asking God to do something. It's a declaration of what is already done. It's a vow of what is ours. Folks, I want you to understand something. He's not saying ask God and if God, you catch God in the right mood or on the right day, then good things will happen. He's saying, here's how to make healing work in the church. Make the declaration or the vow of faith. Now, faith is the evidence of things not seen. 
So it's believing in something that you can't yet see. It's believing in healing while there's still sickness present in your body. Now, how can we do that? Because Jesus paid a price for it. I don't know if you know this or not, but when you got saved, you confessed your salvation before you ever were saved. You spoke saving words that brought you into salvation. In the same manner, in the same principle that works here, you speak healing words that brings you into healing and health. The declaration of the vow is made before the healing occurs. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. The word save is is translated heal or make whole in other places in the New Testament. That is being saved from sickness is being healed. The prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. Then it goes further and says, and if. Everybody say if. And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. And if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven. Sometimes sickness is attached to disease. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Sometimes sickness is attached to sin. Sometimes sickness is the result of sin. Not always. That's why I said and if. But we could well understand that some sexually transmitted diseases would be as a result of sin. What if something like that occurs? God will heal your body and forgive you from your sin all in one stroke. Notice God's attitude is not, well, you better fix your life first and then we'll talk about healing later. No, it's one complete package. Why? Because Jesus paid a price both for sin and sickness at once. It's not God trying to get back at you. It's God not requiring you to fix things first. It's God offering you help and deliverance. And the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. I love that. The Lord shall raise him up. You don't have to raise yourself up. The Lord shall raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. That's the work of the church, folks. And I want you to understand that James, if he is truly writing by the Holy Ghost, which I believe he is, if he's truly writing by the Holy Ghost, by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, then that means this is a fail-safe method, a fail-safe method for receiving healing in the church. The Lord shall raise him up. The prayer of faith shall heal the sick. Do you see that? Why? Because sickness is always of the devil. And Jesus is always of the healer. Well, is there any 